We are entering into the last days on earth of our Lord Jesus until the time that He returns. And I hope that you'll do this. I hope we're going to be finishing this and beginning a new series. But I want you to really work on staying plugged in as we talk about the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for us. This is such an amazing passage of Scripture. And as I mentioned in the one call last night, I am very excited about what we get to look at in this text. So let's start reading in verse 1, chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, and what words? This prayer that He had prayed to the Father for the disciples. When Jesus had spoken these words, He went forth with His disciples over the brook Cedron, where was a garden into which He entered with His disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed Him, knew of the place, for Jesus oft times resorted thither with His disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh hither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon Him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered Him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am He. And Judas also, which betrayed Him, stood with them. As soon, as, as soon then... As he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Then asked he them again, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I've told you that I am he. If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spake of them, which thou gavest me, I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into the sheath. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Then the band and the captain and officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him and led him away to Annas first, for he was father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. Heavenly Father, this is such an amazing passage of Scripture. And Lord, help us as we study this and we think about it. Lord, help us to understand that You truly are the all-powerful God, and You are the one that we serve. Lord, help us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now remember, all of the Gospels present a certain aspect of Jesus Christ. Matthew presents Jesus Christ as the King of the Jews. Mark, Jesus as the suffering servant. Luke, Jesus as the perfect man. And John, Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And so you have different viewpoints of the life of Jesus Christ. Matthew presents Him, it's a very Jewish context. He is your Messiah. He is your Christ. He is the one who has come to establish the kingdom, and they rejected Him. In Mark, Mark was written from a Jewish perspective. It's very short, um, a lot of action, and Jesus Christ is simply presented as a servant. Luke, the doctor, the great thinker, he presents Jesus Christ as the perfect man, and a lot about the humanity of Christ. That's where we look during Christmas time at His birth, and all of those different aspects. But in John, we see Him as the Son of God. Of God. 
Matthew, the lineage of Jesus Christ is taken back to Abraham. Mark, there's no lineage because who cares about the lineage of a servant? In Luke, you have the the lineage of Christ taken all the way back to Adam, the first man. And in John, you have his lineage taken back to before the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. The Gospel of John presents Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Look at John chapter 20, and keep keep your place in John 18. We'll always be coming back. But look at John chapter 20 and verse 31. Look at verse 30 for the context. John 20, verse 30. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. So Jesus did a lot of things, but there are only certain things that are listed in this book. Why? But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through His name. That's the purpose of this book. And we see encapsulated in this chapter the truth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that this book is presenting in that way. So what I want us to look at this morning is Jesus Christ, our supremely powerful sacrifice. Jesus Christ, our supremely powerful sacrifice. So let's go back to John 18. Look at the text with me. The first thing that I want you to see is the familiar place. The familiar place where this takes place. Verse 1 again, When Jesus had spoken these words, He went forth with His disciples over the brook Cedron, where was a garden into the which He entered and His disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed Him, knew the place. Look at what it says. For Jesus oft times resorted thither with His disciples. So, This is a place that Jesus went often. Who here has been over to the Holy Land in Jerusalem? If you've been there, would you raise your hand? Man, we need to take a church trip. Doesn't that sound good? What are you all doing tomorrow? (laughs) You've got to go. I I had a chance to go a couple of years ago. And you can go right into the, from the Mount of Olives, you can come down right into the Garden of Gethsemane. And you can see where Jesus did this. And it's where Jesus went often. Isn't it interesting that, that Jesus Christ lived in such a way that His disciples knew what His habits were? He was familiar to them. Look at 1 John chapter 1. First John chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon... And our hands have handled of the word of God. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. He's talking about Jesus. They saw Him. They knew Him. They handled Him with their hands. They knew everything about Him that He revealed Himself. He didn't hide anything about His humanity from the disciples. They knew what He was going to do. This was a familiar place. Not only was it familiar to the disciples, it was familiar to Judas, the disciple that would betray him. So the disciples knew that Jesus would go there. Judas knew that Jesus would go there. And Jesus knew that Judas knew that he would go there. He wasn't hiding. He was making himself available. Jesus Christ. The thing that we have to remember in the Gospel of John is that Jesus Christ 
is in complete control of everything that happens to him. Don't look at Jesus as a soft, wimpy guy that couldn't handle the the trouble. That's not what's going on. And the Gospel of John presents Jesus Christ as being in complete control. So the first thing is the familiar place. He was making himself available. The second thing is the familiar events. The familiar events. Look at verse 3. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. They were really afraid of the disciples. That's interesting, isn't it? Lanterns and torches and weapons. And then look at what happens. Verse 4. Jesus, therefore... Read those next three words for me. That should come upon him, went forth, and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They're coming, and Jesus Christ knows exactly where they're going to be, and he walks out to meet them. And he asks a question. Now remember, Jesus never asks a question to gain information. Isn't that good? God never asks a question to gain information. Jesus walks up. What what are you guys doing here? We're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. Shazam! (laughs) That's not Jesus. He, He knew everything. The familiar events. Remember, prophecy is Jesus writing history before it happens. Right? Isaiah chapter 46 and verse 9. He says, I am God. And he says, declaring the end from the beginning. That's him. That's him. He says, remember the former things of old, for I am God. What is that? It's history mixed with prophecy. Because if Jesus Christ writes something or says it, it is going to happen. And so Jesus Christ walks out there. He knows everything that's going to happen. And he steps up and faces them. And so familiar events. Wouldn't it be awesome? You're a salesman and you walk in, you know exactly what the objections are going to be. That'd be cool, wouldn't it? Or how about this, guys, you're in a fight with your wife and all of a sudden you know what she's thinking. Would that be awesome? New marriage. Jesus Christ walked in. Chad just said that would be scary. Is there stuff going on in Beth's head that scares you? Okay. Females in general? All right. And all the men said... Amen. All right, now, we're going to have an invitation right there. Let's all... <laughs> so the, the familiar events, Jesus knew it all. And you might want to write this down. Jesus cannot be surprised. Jesus cannot be surprised. Can you imagine trying to give him a surprise birthday party? It's just not going to work. Jesus cannot be Surprise! So the familiar place and the familiar events, and then the familiar friend. You know how the Bible describes him? My own familiar friend. That's a sad thing. Look at um, Matthew chapter twenty-six. Look at verse 47. 
And while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now, I want you to see the difference. Keep your place here in Matthew 26. Go back to John and look at the difference of the perspective. It says in verse 3, Judas then, having received a band of men. In John, it's a band of men. In Luke, it's a great multitude. What's the difference? The perspective. Do you think Jesus is afraid of a band of men? And Jesus isn't afraid of a great multitude. But in Luke, you're looking at a man facing a great multitude. In John, you're looking at the Son of God. See the difference? Okay, back to Luke. I'm sorry, back to Matthew. Where did Luke come from? I don't know. Matthew, verse 47 again. And while he yet spake, Judas, one of the twelve, came with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now... He that betrayed him gave him a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same as he, hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. Friend. I wonder what happened in Judas's heart when Jesus said that. Because you know that that Judas felt horrible about what he had done. I wonder if this is the moment when Jesus called him friend. And I'll tell you this, for all the Jews that were there, it connected them back with the prophecy that his own familiar friend would betray him. You see, every bit of this was prophesied in the Old Testament. It's all being fulfilled, and Jesus Christ is in complete control. They were familiar events, and he was being betrayed by his familiar friend. Do you remember what Jesus said to him in the upper room? Whatsoever thou doest, do it quickly. Do it quickly. Now, here's what we don't know. Satan had entered into Judas at that point. Was Jesus addressing Judas, or was he addressing Satan? Because you do know that Satan obeys Jesus Christ's commands. He has no choice. It's, an, it's, it's a different subject, but I want you to think about it. Martin Luther, the, the father of Lutheranism, he hated the Baptists and would have killed you and me, but listen to what he said. He said, There is a devil, but he's God's devil. Why? He was, he's a created being. In the day when thou wast created, Ezekiel chapter 28 says of Lucifer, the light bearer. Now, go back to John chapter 18. The familiar friend. So we have a familiar place, the familiar events, the familiar friend. But I want you to see the familiar power. The familiar power. This isn't like a movie that you see where all of a sudden someone discovers they have superpowers. Have you ever wanted superpowers? Man, I always did. I always wanted to have super strength or super speed. I already have super brilliance. I discovered that a few years ago. Can you imagine? Now, honestly, how many of you guys at some point in your life wanted superpowers? Just raise your hands. Raise your... Yeah, how many of you still do? <laughs> Come time to pay the bills. Super accountant. You know that Jesus Christ didn't discover abilities. I want you to see the power was familiar to him. It was easily wielded. 
and easily controlled. Because one day, the Bible says he upholds all things with the word of his power. That's Jesus. He upholds all things with the word of his power. They come to him. Look, back, look at verse 4, or verse 5. Then answered him, Jesus of Nazareth, Judas saith unto them, I am he. And when he, verse 6, as soon then as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. He could have blown them off the planet. Right? Can you imagine that happening? Oops. <laughs> there, there's no oops with God. It's not like Bob hanging a picture of mommy. There's no oops with Jesus. This, this power is easily wielded and easily controlled. That's, that's the Savior that we serve. You know, have you seen the, the image of Jesus on the cross? That's not our Savior. We're going to talk about that in a minute. That's not the Savior that we serve. He was always in complete control. And there's something I want you to consider. Not only was He God, He was a carpenter. And remember, carpenters of those days wielded huge beams and huge rocks. He was a physically imposing man. He did not need man camp. He was the perfect man. Imagine one man walking into the mall at Christmas time and finding a cord and completely empties the place out by himself. Guards, soldiers, and all. Jesus did that twice. And that amazing physique was wrapped around God. It's an amazing thing. That's the Lord that we serve. That's the Lord that steps out in verse 4. He went forth and He said unto them, Whom seek ye? I like to think of it like this. You looking for me? That really is the attitude. He is taking charge of the situation. That's Jesus, the familiar power. But I want you to think about something. I want you to think about the power that Jesus Christ had and the humility that it was wrapped in. And it's something that's very interesting about Jesus. When you see His humiliation, there's always a hint of His power. It's not hidden. So think about when he was born. He comes into the world as a weak baby, and the angels sing. He is laid in a manger in a weak place, and above it is a trembling star. And that star that leads the wisest men and some of the richest men in the world to bring him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. At every event in Jesus Christ's life where his humility is shown, there is a glimpse of his power. At his baptism. Remember John... When he baptized Jesus in Mark chapter 1 and verse 3, it says, And John baptized the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Jesus Christ comes and humiliates himself. He submits to John's baptism, the baptism of repentance. And while he does that, 
God speaks from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus Christ goes and sits on a well on the side of a well in Samaria and talks to a woman of a bad reputation and asks her for a drink of water because he's thirsty. And while he does it, he reveals himself as the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and offers her living water. He falls asleep in a boat because he's physically exhausted and he wakes up and commands the sea to be still and the sea obeys. That's our Savior. He stands beside a tomb of his friend and he weeps. And then he shouts, come forth. And his friend comes staggering out wrapped in grave clothes while people around are just amazed. And if he hadn't said, Lazarus, come forth, everybody would have gotten up. That's our God. That's our Savior. When he goes to the garden and he prays, at his weakest point, and he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. And he said, Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. At his time of greatest humiliation, as he gets ready to go to the cross, the time of his most physical weakness, an angel comes and ministers to him. That's our Savior. He's on the cross. And while he's on the cross, he takes charge. And he says, Mother, behold thy son. Son, behold thy mother. He says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. It is finished. And he yielded up the ghost. And what happens? He dies like a man. And the sky is darkened. The veil in the temple is rent in two. And the centurion says, Surely this was the Son of God. At his time of humiliation, there are glimpses of his deity. That's who we serve. That's our Savior. That's our supremely powerful sacrifice that right now, in our story, is preparing to go to the cross. I want you to think about something. His birth was his own act. Think about that for a minute. How many of you planned your birth? That'd be quite a, that would be quite an accomplishment, wouldn't it? That's what Jesus did. Jesus Christ said, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me. Thou hast prepared for me a body. Jesus Christ, his birth was his own act, but his death was his own act. Look with me. Luke chapter 9. And I know a bunch of you know where we're going right now. Let's see if we know. You ready? Everybody look up here before you turn. The death of Jesus Christ was not a tragedy. It was an accomplishment. Five of you remembered. Let's go and look. Luke chapter 9. Verse 28. And it came to pass about an eight days after these sayings, He took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered, and his raiment was white and glistering. It was bedazzled. (laughs) And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, Elijah, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. Alexander McLaren said that on the Mount of Transfiguration that 
the, the robe of his flesh and the clothes that he had on started glowing, but the glow wasn't on the other people. It came from him and it came from inside. It's like a, a bit of his flesh opened and you could see the glory, just a bit of the glory that was there. And so Moses and Elijah are there and they're talking about the decease, the death that Jesus would accomplish. One of these days, someone's going to walk into a room and they're going to say he didn't make it. She didn't make it. He, he succumbed to cancer. He succumbed to heart failure. His, his heart started beating. His, his wife killed him. Beth and Chad. That's... <laughs> Is that right? Your death won't be an accomplishment. Jesus Christ's was. Our supremely powerful sacrifice. I think we'll talk about this when we get to where uh, to the text where he's on the cross. But I want you to think about something. I don't know if you've ever thought of this. If Jesus hadn't yielded up the ghost, he could still be on that cross alive today. The cross didn't kill Jesus. Do you understand that? He is our supremely powerful sacrifice. He is the God-man that chose to come and take upon him the form of a servant and be found in fashion as a man. And he humbled himself. He chose to humble himself and become obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He is in complete control. That's the Savior that we serve. Back to John chapter 18. Let's look again at verse 6. And as soon as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Then asked he them again, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, I want you to think about something. In the other passages that talk about this, the disciples were getting their swords and they were going to attack. Where did they get this courage all of a sudden? Because all the other soldiers are on the ground. So they're coming and Peter comes through and how does he cut his ear off? Guy's on the ground. And so Jesus Christ says, no, put your swords away. Put your swords away. And look at what he says to them in verse 11. Then said Jesus unto Peter, put up thy sword into the sheath. The cup which my father hath given me, shall not they make me drink it? What's it say? The Bible says he set his face as a flint to the cross. Why is he doing that? For you and for me. For you and for me. So there's a familiar place and a familiar friend and, a, and the familiar power. But I want you to see something really interesting, a familiar plan that's found in this text. Verse 7, Then asked he them again, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Can I ask you a question? Do you think they wanted to answer the second time? I don't think so. And then he said, I've told you that I am he. And can't you see it implied? Do you want me to tell you again? 
If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way. Now, how many prisoners do you think are in charge of their captives? How often do prisoners command their captives? That might happen. How often do those captives obey? What did they do? Look at what he says. He says, Ye seek me, let these go their way. What does he do? The King of glory, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who has clothed himself in flesh, gets between the army and his men. And he says, I'm here, take me. Oh, and by the way, let them go. And what did they do? They let them go. They let them go. That's our Savior. That is our supremely powerful sacrifice. But he doesn't just say, let them go. He says, let these go their way. There's a familiar plan here. Look at Matthew. Keep your place in John 18. Look at Matthew chapter 28. In verse 18, we are talking about our supremely powerful sacrifice. Matthew chapter 28, look at verse 18. Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, What are those next two words? All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. That's our Savior. I want you to see, go back to John 18 and look at the familiar plan. Let these go their way. They had something to do. Jesus wasn't done with them yet. Look at John chapter 17. Look at verse 18. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. They hadn't gone into the world yet. They weren't done yet. He had a job for them to do. And what was the job? That's the second part of his command to them. Look at chapter 18, end of verse 8. Let these go their way. So he says go, and that's a part of the familiar plan. And he says their way, their way. What did Jesus Christ say in John 14, 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Do you know that Jesus has a way that He wants you to go? He has a way that He wants you to go. Let's see if we can find out what that is from the Scriptures. Go to Acts chapter 8. The familiar plan. Verse, Acts chapter 8 verse 1. And Saul, that is the man who had become the Apostle Paul, was consenting unto his death. That's Philip, the deacon. And Saul was, con I'm sorry, Stephen, the deacon. And Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the what? The church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. All right. Look at verse 3. As for Saul, he made havoc of the what? Church. Entering into every house and hauling men and women, committed them to prison. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Now, 
Who is Paul persecuting? The church. You see that? The church. Look at how he describes it when he's giving his testimony in Acts chapter 22. Turn with me to Acts 22. In verse 4. Let's start reading in verse 1. Acts 22, verse 1. Men, brethren, and fathers, hear ye my defense which I make now unto you. And when they had heard that, he spake in the Hebrew tongue to them. They kept the more silence, and he saith, I am verily a man which am a Jew born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, yet brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, the greatest teacher of his day, and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers, and was zealous toward God, as ye all are this day. And I persecuted the church. What's it say? This way unto death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. Do you know what is very interesting? Now, I know that there's a cult over in New Knoxville called... The Way. How many of you have heard of The Way over there? Okay. That's not what we're talking about. They stole that from the Scriptures. They don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They don't believe in the Trinity. It's, it's a cult. Here, when it's talking about The Way, it's talking about the New Testament church. God had a plan. Jesus Christ, He rescued His disciples for a reason. He had sent them into the world. He wanted to go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature and establish churches so people could know the way that they were supposed to go. You see, there is more in the world than evangelism. There is also discipleship. And discipleship is God's plan for making people like Him through the New Testament church. Do you all agree with that? That's God's plan. God's vehicle of expression in this age is the New Testament church. And here's the deal. You are part of that. Our place in His plan, our place in this familiar plan, He saved us and He saved us alive to send us to do a job. We have a reason to live. Are you ready for this? Did you know that God does not need you? God didn't create you because He was lonely. He is all-sufficient in Himself. He has need of nothing. Amen? So when God established the church and put you in the church and gave you a job to do, it's not because He needed your help. Is that good? Why? Because He wants you to understand the fullness of fulfilling a purpose. The purpose for which you were created. You were created to bring Him glory as you submit to His Word and carry out His plan in the world through the New Testament church. That's what you were created for. I'm going to start over. There's three people that agree that you were created to bring glory to His name by submitting to His Word, by carrying out His commission through the New Testament church. Do you believe that's what you were created for? Amen. 
Amen. Hallelujah. I don't have to start over. It is so cool. It is so amazing. It is so profound that our supreme sacrifice, our supremely powerful sacrifice, created us for a reason, saved us for a reason, gifted us for a reason, and has sent us out for a reason. Go to Philippians chapter 2. Look at verse 13. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. That means that God will give you the desire and the ability to do His will. So if it really is God's will for you to be saved, how many of you think that it's God's will that, that everybody be saved? You believe that? Now, if you're a Calvinist and you're here and you don't believe that, I'm sorry to tell you, you're just wrong. The Bible says it's not God's will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So it is clearly God's will that everybody be saved. If you don't agree with that, take it up with God. All right? Amen? Amen. It's very clear. God, if you're here today and you're not saved, God wants you to be saved. If you're here and you're not saved, God wants you to be saved. And do you know what's going to happen? He's going to save you. He's going to give you a new name. He's going to give you a new life. He's going to give you a new enthusiasm. He's going to give you a new power, a new strength, a new vision. He's going to make all things new. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That's what Jesus Christ wants to do for you. He wants to save you. And then he wants to make you useful. So if you've missed everything else, wake up for this. God loves you so much. He wants you to be useful. Do you realize how many people in the world view life as meaningless? Suicides are at their highest rate. Why? Because people feel like their life is meaningless. Have you ever used the wrong tool for a job? Have you ever done that? You, know, you try and drive a nail with a shoe. Right? You try and loosen a, a screw with, a, with a, a, a bolt with a rag and a screwdriver. You ever tried to do something like that? Works great, doesn't it? You get frustrated. Why? Because it's the wrong tool. It's the wrong tool. Jesus Christ made you to be a tool. God made you to be a tool fit for His use fit just right. And you know what happens when you start serving God? All of a sudden, your life has the purpose and the meaning and the fulfillment, the happiness, the joy, the peace, the contentedness that you thought you were supposed to have in life. He created you to have that. And He established the church to give it to you. And the key is finding your place. Tonight, we're going to be introducing at our kickoff our team ministry. And listen, listen. I need your help, but that's not the point of the teams and the ministry. God doesn't need your help. He wants you to be blessed. He wants you to be used. 
He wants you to have a place. And so what we're doing as a church is we're providing a place for you to bloom, for you to just explode in usefulness. Would you like to see Sydney and the surrounding areas reached with the gospel in a truly effective way? Would you like to see that? God's plan is for you to be a part of it. God's plan is for you to be a part of it through what? The way, the local church. Now, some of you who just woke up, you're going to go join the cult in New Knoxville. You're not supposed to be a part of that way. You're supposed to be a part of His way, which is the New Testament church. And it's so exciting that we get to do that. Isn't that wonderful? This is what we get to do. And God has created me and gifted me to do just that. Man, that's exciting. Man, you put me in a class with elementary students. That is not the tool God intended me to be. How many of you standing up here and preaching a sermon, you're saying, "Uh uh-uh, not me. me." You don't have to do that. As a matter of fact, I happen to like my job. You don't have to do that. But you get to do what He created and gifted you to do. Isn't that awesome? Praise God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank You so much that we are a part of Your plan.